Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every month we deep dive into a different aspect of cinema with directors, actors, genres, or franchises. It doesn't matter, because it's always fun at the Film Club. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. And this month we're talking about foreign films, and this week we're talking about... The Grand Illusion. Le Grand Illusion by Jean Renoir from 1937. Uh, this is one of the quintessential French masterpieces, at least one of the French masterpieces pre um, the French New Wave of the 1960s. And it just so happens to land the day before Bastille Day. I don't know how you managed to do this. Because I'm thorough and lucky. Mostly lucky, because you had no idea until I, I mentioned it to you before we started recording. Yes. I also don't know what Bastille Day actually is, but hey, happy Bastille Day. Yes, it's happy French. Bastille Day, yes. Um, so we're talking about the Grand Illusion today, and um, what is your experience with this? Have you ever heard of it before? We'll start with that. Uh, I think I've heard you talk about it before. Never seen it. Any yeah. concept of what the movie no, was about? No, I, I really try to stay in the dark about the movie. I mean, this is also your second genre noir film, right? Is it? Uh, yes, we went to the theater to go see Rules of the Game. Ooh, I did love Rules of the Game. And there is a tie-in to Rules of the Game in uh, this movie. There, there's like four cast member tie-ins yes. Yeah, to Rules of the Game. But, uh, you know, Grand Illusion, I think I saw this movie, I want to say probably about like two years ago. Uh, the first time I watched it, I thought it was... Honestly, I thought it was like, man, this is overhyped and really boring. The second time I watched it, I was like, okay, there's actually a lot here, but it's still kind of boring. And now I watched it this time, and I'm like, I was captivated from pillar to post, and this movie's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought I was going to be boring going into this, because, you know, sometimes you like some sleepers. I like a slow pace uh, with a lot of thought and uh, or or absolute trash. That is my my um, spectrum of movie taste. So when you were telling me that you know you were so excited to do this, you know the keynote was through the roof. I was like, oh man, he's really gonna hit me with one. And no, I found it very entertaining. I actually really liked the movie. Oh, thank God. I All don't right. know if I enjoyed it more than Rules of the Game. This movie didn't have dancing skeletons. Rule of the Game did, so... Mm, it, it's true. And and Rules of the Game is... Well, they they both lean into comedy, but Rules of the Game is a lot more of a... Uh, it's more comedic than this movie. Yes. Uh, Grand Illusion does have comedic elements to it, but mm -hmm. it's, a, it's taking itself a little bit more seriously. It's also comedic relief because we're going through, you know, war. Yes. Um, but, you know, let's let's get into this, you know, before we talk about the actual movie, let's talk about the director, Jean Renoir. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, we've both seen Rules of the Game, we've seen Grand Illusion. What are some things we can say are pretty consistent in, in his work, looking at those two movies? Well, definitely casting. Yes, yeah. He carried over, God, like half the cast from, like, at least the entire male cast from Rules of the Game carried over into this movie. Because I believe... Is Rules of the Game before or after this movie? I believe Rules of the Game is 39 and this is 37. Okay. So I guess I guess they carry over the other way, but you know. It'd be like that. I mean, like, look at it like this. The comedic elements are carrying over, even though they're serious-ish movies. Like, you would classify both of them as dramas. Rules of the Game may be a little bit more of a comedy, but it's yeah. like a romance drama. It's a love triangle. A black comedy. Yeah. And this is like a war film. Like yeah. a, It's a straight up war film where you have the uh, the French Charlie Chaplin just hamming it up. Yeah. Yeah. Every second he's on screen. 
Uh, I mean, you even have a romance in this movie. Oh, I mean, are we are we already going to get into uh, Riftoffen and Bourdieu? No, I, I was actually talking about... Uh, Elsa and um, Ma- Marcel. Marcel and Elsa, yeah. No, no, no. Their passion is not nearly that of uh, von Rothenstein and Bourdieu. That romance is, is true <laughs> Kino. Yeah. I haven't quite seen a true love like that in a long time. And I was like, wow, no wonder Dean loves this movie. It's about brotherhood. It It's just boys. It's it's dudes Be- doing dude things. You know, just having a couple <laughs> bros, doing some bro jobs, you know. Some bro jobs. Wow. <laughs> oh, uh, this movie. This movie is really funny. But I love their dynamic. Their, the dynamics of the movie are really kind of what sells it. All the the ensemble cast is perfect. And I think yeah. every member of the cast brings something to it. I mean, I love that the Ruskies go crazy. <laughs> and the French are just like, yeah, they're doing what they're doing. Uh, goddamn Russians <laughs> is just like the, the Red October. And it's just like, huh, let's use them going batshit crazy so we can escape out of here. I guess it's, we should probably tell people what the movie's about. Yeah, that would help. Just just a little bit. A little bit. A hair. Well, I have the back of the box, so that'll help. <laughs> it's going to be a big box. Long movie. It, it, it's not that long. It's not even two hours. It's close. It's close. But the movie's about two World War One French pilots, the aristocratic Captain de Baldieu, and the working class Lieutenant Monsel. I can't believe I got those right. Let's go. <laughs> Uh, they are shot down behind enemy lines by the German flying ace and the aristocratic Rittmaster von Rufenstein. So good about that. Let's or, go. Or, you know, you may know him as the butler in Sunset Boulevard. Uh, uh, yes, he is also Max. Yes. Uh, he is uh, director Eric von Stroheim, mm-hmm. a very famous, famous, famous uh, director. And him and Jean Renoir had a, had a little bit of a beef, but we'll get to that. <clears throat> But uh, the French pilots, they are taken prisoner, and they spend the next two years with their fellow countrymen putting on shows and killing time as they plot a escape. But when their escape fails, they are sent off to von Rothenstein's fortress to be held prisoner. Now the soldiers stuck in a massive complex plot one last escape, even if it means dying in the process. And, you know, they escape the, you know, countryside, and there's a whole, like, other movie that happens in the last 20 minutes yeah yeah. and uh yeah and then you know comedy ensues but yeah this is a movie that is um it is doing a lot saying a lot about a lot of different things it's a lot of heavy material we are going through the first world war in this movie and it's all happening on the cusp of world war ii because this is 37 yeah but Renoir does it in a very lighthearted way where it's like, you know, these Frenchmen are, you know, in a a camp, in a war camp, but they're all, you know, happy and they're bonded with each other. And it's like, we're going to get out of here. You know, we're good. We're good. Yeah, that's that's going to be something that's going to be weird for people watching the movie is to cross that boundary, because don't be wrong, like the war, like a prisoner of war camp was probably not this like boys in a dorm room, but mm-hmm. it's like 70% there, 80% there from what I understand. Performing shows. Well, that's like a real, that was like a real thing because if you were an officer in the military, like you're, you're treated different than you're captured kind yeah. of thing because like you have a status, you have a value kind of thing in terms of bargaining. So you're treated well enough but you're like you can't leave or do anything so mm-hmm. though the officers would like 
kind of have a repertoire with the um, German soldiers who like held them captive. So they would put on shows or they would be like friendly to each other. They weren't friends, but they were friendly kind of thing. Yeah. As friendly as, you know, prisoner and um, prison keeper could be, I guess. But that's, it is really weird when they get captured and the French guy's like, oh, I can't cut my steak. And the German guy's like, don't worry, I'll cut it for you. And they're all like, oh, aren't you so sweet? Oh, very strong over there. War will be over in a month. That's why it was so confusing. I was like, what? It's like, why are they so friendly and nice to each other? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of going into the whole theming of the movie because. The movie talks about a bunch of stuff. It talks about war, talks about race, talks about class, talks about society, politics, politics everything, right? That I say Grand Illusion talks about everything in humanity. It talks about illusions. Yes. Because it's brought up in the dialogue. A lot. Yeah. I'm like a little too on the nose there. Just a hair, just yeah. a hair. But I mean, that's uh, the thing, the the Grand Illusion of, of all this, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, their German... Um, captors are treating them relatively well, honestly, like in terms of one-on-one interaction, they're like, you know, yeah, you know, how's it going? You know, Mr. Arthur, oh, it's fine, Mr. You know, Pewo, it's mm-hmm. all good. And it's like this, it's all an illusion. Yeah. It's like, you're, we are enemies in warfare, but that's just like an illusion. Like if we were on the streets, we'd be like totally like fine. Yeah. You know, like all of this... um all the war stuff, all the nationalism, all this stuff is just a huge illusion. Once we just kind of take that away and we're just people. Once war is over, we're going to go back to being comrades. You know, yeah. yeah, I might see you in a bar. We have dinner together and then, you know, we're good. We go from there. It It's really interesting. And it's I think it's exemplified with uh, von Rothstein, played, you know, played by... Um, uh, Eric von Stroheim mm-hmm. and his relationship with Baldia because yeah. they're both like these aristocrats, mm-hmm. you know, well-off families, very rich. You know, yeah, they're Baldia has um, a cousin that's like um, he's like a royal in in Germany. Yes, it, it's something it's something like that because they're both like of a um, echelon that just kind of doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, oh, so what do you what do you do? It's like, oh well, I'm a professional army person and mm-hmm. i am a of this really wealthy class and i am all this other stuff that's like doesn't ex- at least doesn't exist in america usually once you get rich you do everything to not have to be in the military yeah and in this you know it's very much you know for country for pride and it's like yeah you know i am french my cousin's french and he's an attache to you know the german whatever but it's like you know, it's like, I respect you because we're kind of on the same playing field. We don't want this war, but we have to stand with our countries. And I think that's interesting how you put that is they're both basically the same guy, mm-hmm. just transposed to different like places. Yeah. And they have this very interesting relationship because it's I like... I love their relationship. It It is almost romantic in mm-hmm. sections because... Boldia is like, well, I have to escape the prison camp. And they're like, why? And he's like, because I must. Mm-hmm. Why do you climb a mountain? Because it's there. And von Rothstein is like, I would do the same under the same circumstances. And it's in Boldia is like, and I would do the same as you under the same circumstances. Mm-hmm. And they're, they have this relationship of they both understand everything about each other. And they have the scene where they're both walking in the, um, 
down the hall and they have their cigarettes in the same arm mm-hmm. and they're walking in step the exact same way and the only difference is the uniform. Yeah, and, the uniform and the language. And that's something interesting that comes up is language in the movie because... It was freaking me out anytime they spoke in English because I was like, hey, I'm finally understanding. And I was like, oh, that's right. You don't speak n- neither French nor German, so... You're not going to be picking up the language just like that. It's not that easy. Not that easy, but it would throw me. But that's an interesting thing because Baldia and um, Rothstein, they talk to each other in English when they don't want other people to like mm-hmm. eavesdrop in the conversation. But they also do that because at the time, if you were part of the aristocracy of the, the European royalty, English was like the the dialogue con- like uh, language. Mm-hmm. It was like the thing where it's like, oh, well, you were a duchess and he's a duke and you're from Spain and he's from, you know, Austria. Well, you both learned English so you can converse with each other. That was like a diplomatic language. So that's another like level to it where it's like um, Marcel, he only speaks French. He has no idea what the fuck any of them are saying. And then you have, um, is it Rothstein? Rothschild? The one that uh, escapes with him? Yes. Um, oh, oh, uh, 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 Rosenthal. Rosenthal, yeah. Rosenthal. Rosenthal speaks like French and German, mm-hmm. but he's also like that middle between Marcel and Valdir, mm-hmm. where Marcel is like working class, came from nothing. Valdir is like, I'm an aristocrat. And mm-hmm. Roth and uh, Rosenthal is like, I am a upper middle class, like Jewish banker. Mm-hmm. Like my family kind of came from nothing, but I am now very wealthy. Yeah. And it's like, there's a whole thing where there's this divide of class structure within the prison camp. I even think, was it one of the the German soldiers where he's like getting everybody in line or it might've been one of the Frenchmen. And he goes, I was a schoolmaster. He's like, you know, I'm used to kind of dealing with, with children and getting children to behave. And it was kind of like, pulling all these different things and seeing these aren't just soldiers. These are actual people. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That Exactly. That's when they first get into the prison camp. Yeah. And it's just so interesting to see, you know, how they're pulling from their real lives, even though they're at war and, you know, we must march on and soldier on. And it's like, yeah, but I'm going to pull from my real life to kind of help me survive this. I mean, I, I call him the French Charlie Chaplin. He's mm-hmm. he's in Rules of the Game, and he's, he, is. he is the biggest ham comedic element of the movie. As soon as I saw him, I was like, oh my god, that's the guy that steals the other guy's woman. Yes. And then the, the guy that got his woman stolen is in this movie. Yes, it, it is. It's it's really funny. I forget the, the actor's name, and I forget the character's name. Uh. In the in this movie, his name is uh, Cartier. Cartier. He's um he's an actor outside of this, and his whole thing he's putting on shows, and mm-hmm. he's a big ham and a big mm-hmm. jokester, and he's just this spark of comedy and livelihood in this setting. I mean, even when he has that dramatic moment where he he passes out when he's digging the tunnel because there's no oxygen down there, and I was like, oh my god, I was like, I love him from Rules of the Game. Please don't die this early in the movie. And they pull him out and. Give him the cognac. Give him the cognac. Give him the cognac. We need to rouse him. And he takes a sip and he's like, oh, give me that shit, dog. Come on. I get free cognac? And it's like, I, I almost just died, but it's okay. Like, we got the drink. We're good. Oh, and they, they do the whole, like, vaudeville drag show and all that. But it it is so interesting how they're building what is going to become the trope mm-hmm. of prison movies. Yeah. You know, all these guys, they're in they're inside. And then you have, it's like, well, that guy's the funny guy. Well, that guy's the the 
too smart for his own good guy. That's the tough guy over there. That's the guy who's playing in the escape. Well, I mean, you know, you also see the um, the inspirations for future films mm-hmm. in this movie, like when we're having the vaudeville scene and news breaks out that the French took back the... Um, it, it, the fort. We'll the call, fort. Yeah. The fort, yeah. It has a weird French name. Yeah, I was trying to remember the name of the fort and I couldn't. I'm not going to butcher the name either. And they break out into Le Marseille. And I was like, oh my god, this is probably where Casablanca was inspired to do this. Michael Curtiz, 100,000% crib notes from this movie. Yeah, I was just like, wow. Another movie that probably crib notes from this, even though it's, I think it's based on a true story, The Great Escape. Yeah. 100% they crib notes from this movie. The tunnel, how it's how it's shot mm-hmm. is like a parallel. The like it's this feels like the movie that all these prison escape all these like war movies uh anti-war pro-war what however you want to describe it war movies are cribbing notes from this all after world war ii after world war ii they're all like what's the best war movie we can kind of look for for inspiration and this is it because it does so much the only thing we, we don't have in here is a battle scene no this is this is definitely in the prison escape genre more than it is in the um, action packed war film. Yeah, I mean, there's no flashbacks. There's no actual war scenes in this movie. It's all what's going on in the camp. Well, camps because we do move twice. Yes, and then what happens in society when they do escape and they're trying to make it to Switzerland. And I. I can't wait to talk about that because that's when this turns into a different like short film. Oh my god, I was so thrown because I'd forgotten that, that about whiplash? them. I'd forgotten about them. I was like, oh yeah, they escaped, and I thought you know that was just going to be how it is. You know, waiting for the credits to start rolling. Yeah, I, I assumed okay, we can probably interpret it. They made it. There's never word that you know we captured them. But no, yeah, the, the movie completely takes a 180. And I look okay. Yeah, you know, we'll talk about that. We're we're jumping around anyway. Right. The movie up and the movie is an escape movie, mm-hmm. right? They're planning how to get an escape, and then they're like, "Oh, we can't escape," so we go to the fortress, and then they're like, "Boldu is like, well, I can sacrifice myself and and let you two escape, uh, Rosenthal and Marcel, because you're my best buddies, and I'm mm-hmm. gonna get out of here." And once they get out, they're escaping through um, Austria or Germany to get to Switzerland, right? Yeah. And on the way, I Rosenthal like breaks his foot or something like that it's i, I think he sprains his foot it, it's supposed to come across that he's kind of like a klutz mm-hmm. and it's like oh you know i slipped and i fell i'm okay and then it just progressively gets worse until he can like he cannot go on and i love when they blow up at each other because it's just they're hungry they're tired they're scared they're frustrated and they're cold they yes <laughs> and the language they use to each other is is perfect because it brings into another thing about the movie. Because um, Rosenthal, he calls Marcel a, um, like, get out of here, you uh, you cheap dog, or something like that. Like, you you you, you big buffoon, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And Marcel comes back with him, like, get out of here, you stinking Jew. Yeah. And it's, and it's that thing where it's like, you guys have just suffered together in this POW camp. You guys have now traveled probably like a hundred miles together and there's still that underlying division between you Mm -hmm. of like oh you're attacking his status you know he's poor and he's poor and undereducated and you're attacking him on his religion and Mm -hmm. his race and it's like 
the movie is making points of that because earlier in the movie, uh, it's like the only black officer in the film. He tries to show them like, hey, I just did. Hey, I did this. You know, what do you think? And they're like, oh, that's nice or whatever. And just completely blow them mm-hmm. off. And it's like, well, that's another level of talking about race in the movie. Yeah. Which is so fascinating because it's already talking about 15 other things, right? Yeah. I mean, this movie is just so jam-packed with things to focus on that you really have to pay attention to every small detail because it's like, wow, they're really trying to tackle everything that's going on in society right now. And talking about going on in society, they manage to escape and they get to this barn and that's where they meet uh, Elsa Elsa. and Lolita. Lolita? Yeah, that's the... Or, Stanley Kubrick's Lolita? I don't think... Oh, no, it's Lottie, sorry. Lottie, okay. Lottie. Man, that would that would be a very different movie. They show up and they find Lolita there. I thought I heard them say Lolita, but yeah, it's, it's saying Lottie right here. Okay, so... Th- but that's where they meet them, and they form this, like, functional family unit. Yeah, it, it turns into a real kinship between the, the four of them. Yeah, and... It, you know, her husband, she's like, my husband died in the war, so I'm alone here. And she doesn't turn them into the German officers no. or any of them. Why do you think that is? Why do you think she shows them this mercy? Well, she shows them the pictures of her husband. And then I was trying to, was it her brothers or was it his brothers in that photo with him? I feel it's her brothers. I, I think the implication is that her brothers and her husband have all died in the war i think that's the implication we're supposed to take so i think it's just this thing where it's you know she's lost everything and she's i think not you know i i only support the german side it's kind of you know i am so tired of this war i don't care you know why they're fighting they've taken everything from me they've taken everything from me i just want some normalcy i want you know i want my family back and i think that's what she gets from them where it's kind of like you know you guys are kind of could be my surrogate family because you were also trying to escape this war. Oh, that's that's very interesting. Like she sees them as in the same boat as her. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it, it is a very, um, okay, it's a very pretty and like very interesting part of the movie, but it also comes out of fucking nowhere. We oh, turned yeah. into a domestic drama for like the last 30 minutes, 20 yeah. minutes just completely wipes you out like what now we're you know in the countryside and we're happy and there's a romance like okay i'll take it i i mean it's start it kind of starts to make sense as it goes along because they show up marcel can't speak german she can't speak french so um rosenthal has to translate for them and then as he starts to kind of fall into this father husband Mm -hmm. relationship rosenthal falls into this like uncle Uncle. kindness relationship and he learns a little bit of german she learns a little bit of french and they go from being i mean they were relatively attractive to each other but they had no way to express anything to each other they were still apart but once they started learning the language it becomes apparent what renoir is saying is the only thing that divides us is language yeah once we can understand each other then we can work it out and that's why i love one of the lines in the movie by marcel when he's talking to uh, rosenthal and he goes look you know in the camps i couldn't understand anything that the officers were you know yelling at me but her when she speaks german i understand her german Uh, my boy marcel (laughs) is uh he's played the field a few times (sighs) and then she understands his french and it's just you know this connection where it's just you know 
kind of this thing where she had been married, she had a family, and it's kind of like, you know, he was my first love or whatever, and this could be, you know, my last love. And it's it becomes this beautiful and sad moment yeah. when because you know they have the whole family dynamic they do uh christmas together mm-hmm. that she he's taking care of the kids all this other stuff when they're like we got to move on dude mm-hmm. like we we're we've overstayed we've, we've overstayed at any point another german patrol can come in and mm-hmm. come looking for us we gotta like get to switzerland because that's neutral territory yeah. at least from there we know the Germans aren't coming after us. At least from there, we might might be able to like reconnect with the French uh, army and get back to the war and try and get this over with. And he tells her, like, when the war's over, I'll come back for you. Mm-hmm. And you see it in her eyes that she's like, sure, you will. Yeah, because it's this thing of, you know, that's probably what her husband promised her. When this is over, I'll be back home. Same with her brothers. I'll be back home. But, you know, again, it could also be, well, once you get back to France, why do you need to come back for me? Why do you need to come back for my child? Like, you could start a brand new life. You don't need me. You're like, I I will just be a a fleeting wartime memory. Yeah. You know, this woman that, you know, granted me kindness, fed me so that I wouldn't die. Ah, the good old days. Ah, the good old. I mean, that's of the really like sad interpretation because you know there's there's the the romantic in, in us all that's like, oh yeah, after the after the wars ended, yeah, he went back and they made like fifteen more kids and they lived happily ever after until he died of old age in, in his nineties, right? That's the romantic in he us. He was like, you know what? We don't need to live in France. We could live here in Germany and we'll tend to the farm and it'll just be a happy ending on the pastures. And the movie doesn't give us a definitive ending. What the the no. ending of the movie gives us is they finally like cross that bridge into mm-hmm. well, not bridge but open field of snow. Yes, into Switzerland as the German patrols like right on their tails and they're about to like shoot them dead. And he's like, "Wait, wait!" They cross the border, guys. They beat us fairsies and squaresies, mm-hmm. and then it shows like what what it is, and it's the same open wilderness that we've seen before and it's Renoir saying again that guys borders nations it's all an illusion it's all bullshit we make up like we're all humanity like what borders are just things we just kind of said existed and then we just kind of live by it and that is the ending that's in the movie of them crossing switzerland Mm -hmm. but there is there was an alternate ending to the movie really yeah, this was, I believe it's in the original script, and I don't believe it was shot. Um, but what it originally was, was that Rosenthal and Marcel, when they were crossing over, they were supposed to promise each other, hey, when this war's over, meet me at that cafe in Paris. Mm-hmm. And then it was going to cut to the amethyst. The war's over. Oh, we've did it. And it was going to pan over to two empty chairs at a cafe. And then that gets into a very, very depressing, like... Yeah. They didn't oh, make it. Yeah, but that was. But then he was like, "Ah, we don't need that in the movie." So then we get this ending, which is a lot more open, and you can have that happy idea. Yeah, you can make up the story is. for yourself. You know, they made it. They were able to get back to France and you know, rejoin the army, go save their people that were you know in these camps. And you you generally hate open endings like this. I do, but I I knew with a movie of this, you know, this territory, I'm like, I'm not gonna get a. Get a, get an ending where it flash forwards and Marcel is like 95, yeah, it's 90 grandkids, Rosenthal comes in in the walker. 
Yeah, I knew that wasn't going to happen in this movie. Because, I mean, they don't even know about, um, what is it, their captain? Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, the Boldia, because he gets... Sh- oh, okay, do you want to talk about that one? Uh, we have to, because that kind of ties in to this ending, because Rosenthal mentions him, and he's like, hey, I wonder if he's okay. And Marcel is like, you know, I'm not even going to think about it. He's like, we can't, we can't, you know, we can't go back. Yeah. Because, you know, that is possible that he is dead that he was killed or murdered for helping them escape and the that whole moment and we really gotta hammer down that Rothstein and Baldu they are like really close like they have like this weird bond that even uh, Baldu and the other Frenchmen don't have yeah because they really view each other as total equals. Mm-hmm. Like, you and me are the only two people in this war that are on the exact same level. Yeah, I mean, we see it with uh, Beaulieu, where he, he doesn't understand why his bunk isn't searched. When they, they go through the their quarters and they're looking for anything. And he asks him a couple of times, well, why isn't my stuff searched? I'm equal to my men. And, he's, and, and you have uh, Stroheim. Where he's just like, no, you're not. You, he, he he goes up and asks him. It's like, just tell me. It, there's tell me. There's nothing in there. And he's like, there's not. And he's like, well, your word means more than Rosenthal, and it means more than Melchior. And that's something that's another level of talking about that because he he holds on Rosenthal for a minute. Yeah, and that's like. Renoir commenting is like hey there's some underlying anti-semitism in mm-hmm. this german army occupation and whatnot that <clears throat> again comes up a little later that's this underlying thing in like society yeah and it's like it, it it's very interesting but in the context of that it's Rothenstein and Baldio looking at each other and being like we are like two sides of the same coin mm-hmm. my brother like we are here and we 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 working this shit out and when Rothenstein has to kill Baldia when he's escaping, that's so depressing. That's yeah. so sad. And I mean, I love that, you know, Baldia for that scene just goes completely nuts. He's out there with his flute. He's, you know, because for most of the movie, he's being very stoic, very he's aloof. Very aristocratic. Yeah. And, you know... It's everyone else that's kind of being, you know, comedic and cartoony, but it's him that's just, you know, there, you know, shining his monocle, you know, ho ho, you boys, you know, and then in this moment, you know, we've got him playing the flute, you know, being Peter Pan, here he is sitting over here, and, you know, he's going across the rocks, and, and it's... And the reason he's doing this is to give um, Rosenthal and Marcel as much time as possible to escape. Yeah, and it, it's, you know... um, I keep wanting to call him Stroheim, but uh, Ralphenstein, where he's just kind of like, what are you doing? You need to get down. You need to stop this or I will have to shoot you. And then he finally realizes why he's doing it. He's doing it to protect his men and to help his men. And that's like he respects him <sighs> even more. And the two men know he has to shoot. And that that's one of those things where it's like, at the end, you know, Baldu, he's, like, lying there, and they're like, you shot him through the stomach. He's, like, he's dead. Like, he's dying right now. And Rothstein is like... I, I aimed for your leg. 
I didn't mean to do this. And Boldero is like, it was dark. I was running. Yeah. The first thing he was like, it's the visibility. He goes, it was really bad that night. And it's not even like a, dude, you know, why didn't you aim better for my leg? It's just, he's like, I understand. It It's one of those things where they, like when, I know we memed at the beginning where it's like, oh, the the romance of this movie. But this is like yeah. the romance where it's like they re- legitimately are like, it's not like, a, I guess it's not like um a, like a sexual love. Like I don't get that far, no. but it is like a deep like, bro, we are, we are in this together. We're on opposite sides, but you know, as well as I do that we are in this shit together. And that's. That's another thing about this movie that's fascinating. Yeah, because I mean, you know, you have this deep conversation, this last conversation that these two men are having. And he goes, you know, uh, Baldio, he goes, you know, I'm doing the easy part. I'm dying. I'm getting out of here. He goes, you have to live the rest of your life, you know, still fighting this fight. You now have my blood on your hands. You have so many, you know, other people's blood on your hands. You've survived all these things and you're still going. I feel sorry for you. That's that's one of the saddest. That's one of the ha- okay hardest shit in cinema one hundred and one right here. When you tell the guy, it's like, bro, I'm dying, but I still won this fight. That's oh. I won this fight, and I feel bad for you because you keep losing. And you see, you well, you don't just see, but you hear from Ralphenstein, whereas he's like, you know, I've got a metal plate in my head, you know, my spine, my I've been shot through the leg, I've been, you know, my hands are burned. You know, my body's burned. Very early Darth Vader. Very. He even has the neck brace. The neck brace. And it's like, you see all these things that he survived. And he's just like, you know, the the greatest thing or the easiest thing to do in war is to die instead of survive it and have to live with the aftermath. And he's like, I can't. And, and Rothstein is even bitter about the fact he survived this long yeah. because he's like... You know, I, he's like, I broke my body serving my country. I should have died, but I didn't. And now they have posted me here and I'm a glorified secretary. Mm-hmm. He's like, I, I should have died in honors and be buried with my, with my forefathers as a war hero. With and, his men. With his men. And now he's going to die an old man, a broken old man in a mm-hmm. wheelchair because of this. And the, that final conversation when, um, Boldio finally dies and he goes over to the, the flower the he, oh my god his plant yeah his plant he and they're like this is the only rose this is the only flower that grows here it's like we can grow we can grow needles we can grow vines but we cannot grow flowers the only flowers and, and it's the german soldiers you know oh this crazy old man all he cares about is you know his one plant that he has and then he goes and he cuts the flower off the plant to give it to Baldu. okay do you think he goes and puts it on Baldur as like a whole like, you know, fare, farewell, my friend? Or do you think he cuts it off because he's like, there is no hope anymore? And like, I think it could be a double meaning. I think, you know, his relationship with Baldur was the only beautiful thing in that place. Because you have the other soldier that's with them when they're getting the tour of the castle. Mm-hmm. And he's like, wow, this is 12th century. This is 13th century. And Marcel's like, I don't care, you know. Okay, I I wanted to point this. Out. I pick. I think I picked something up mm-hmm. when he's saying, "Oh, this is 12th, 13th, 14th century." I don't think he's actually saying, "Oh, the building is this." I think what he's saying is like, "Hey, there's I've seen 12th century patrols." 
when he's commenting on the building. Mm-hmm. I think that's a coded thing. Oh, it could be. And I just I just wanted to point that out because I'm like, I, I love that secret spy shit in movies. Oh, it could have been. I, I just picked it up that, you know, he was appreciating the architecture. Like we have the the other Frenchman that loves the books. Mm. So it's like, I thought, you know, we're finally starting to see more of the personalities of these men. So we don't just view them as soldiers. They're not cannon fodder. No, it's like, no, these are actual people. But yeah, I feel like with the flower, I felt like, you know, that could be a thing where, you know, I'm giving something that I found beautiful to my friend that is now gone. But that could also be what you thought, too, with, you know. The one beautiful <sighs> thing in this place is dead. Is It's dead. It's ruined. And then you have the snow falling down outside. And it's just like, bruh, that is. <laughs> this is why. This is like Batman, the animated series, the the Mr. Freeze one. I'm calling it like, Mr. Freeze. They crib notes from this. They crib notes from Grand Illusion. Edward Scissorhands. Ice dance scene. Of course. That's the thing. Renoir is an absolute fucking master here because there's no dialogue for that. It's it's him just going over, cutting it. It's quiet. The snow falling. He uses such an active camera in this. I mean, even when um, Stroheim has to go over and close his eyes for him. Oh, I- because, I mean, they, they're having this conversation and the nurse is like, you know, you need to stop. You need to you need, you need to save your, your energy. And then it's like a minute later and he's just gone. It's like he needed to tell him everything. And we've seen the whole, like, close the guy's mm-hmm. eyes a million times in a million movies. And but this Stroheim one like... has so much, you know, you could just see the, the heartbreak in his face when he's closing his eyes. And he has such gravitas mm-hmm. as, an, as an actor and as, like, a screen presence, which yeah. is weird. Because if you saw if you saw um, Eric von Stroheim at a at a coffee shop, you would think, man, that is a really sad looking old man. But when he's in this in the uniform and mm-hmm. he's like like working it, he, he is so captivating. But he's also he looks very short. Yes, but you know he's this presence when he's over him, and you can only imagine how many times in war he's had to do that to his men. You know, close their eyes and that's it. That's it for you. I'm closing the book on you, and I'm soldiering on. And you want to know the wildest thing about this? What? Uh, Rothstein, Eric Ron Stroheim, he was supposed to be a cameo. He was only supposed <laughs> to be in the first scene. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't see this movie with just, you know, one little snippet of him. So, here's what it was. They got uh, Eric Ron Stroheim for the role, and Jean Noir is like, bro, I got the fucking man in my movie. Because he is a huge fan because Eric von Stroheim in the silent era was considered like the guy. Yeah. Like he made uh, Greed, which is I think even now considered one of the greatest movies ever made. Hmm. And at the time it was like, bro, this this guy's on another fucking level. Like to put it in context, it's like um, it's it's like when um, if Steven, if, if Christopher Nolan got a chance to get Stanley Kubrick is a cameo in memento like that would be that kind of shit like he was that level of fucking hyped about this shit so he gets eric von strohheim in and eric von strohheim's like so what is my character and john war tells him he's like give me a minute and then he builds the entire um rofenstein's character Mm -hmm. out of their conversation and gets the whole well, he's going to have this back brace. This is what's going to happen to him after this event. Like, this is the whole relationship. Lays out the entire thing. And Renoir is like, all right, I guess you're in the whole fucking movie now. And apparently, yeah. like, Eric von Stroheim was a total dick to uh, Renoir the entire shoot. 
Because it's like, you know. I mean, it's two directors working together. Yeah. That was the entire conflict was like, you're really going to frame me like that? I don't think that's the right way to do it. You know, I don't think you really have like a good grasp on the camera, little Jean Renoir. And like Jean Renoir like cried for three days, like at the beginning of the shoot. But yeah, Von Von Stralheim is Kino in this fucking movie. You can watch the movie just for him. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, you're so used to, I mean, like you were saying earlier, we have so many uh, prison break movies. We have so many war movies. You're used to the hard-ass captain that is going to, you know, grind you into the floor. But because of that, that makes you a stronger soldier. But he has so much empathy. And, you know, he has a heart. And it's just like... It's, it's all that humanity that's built into him. And that's what's so surprising. You'd think, you know, he'd be this asshole. And it's just like, no, you know, war has broken my body. It's kind of broken my spirit a little bit. And... But it has not broken my heart. It hasn't broken my heart. It, I Okay, this is a question that I always get... I get when I watch this movie. Is he a villain? Like, he's an antagonist. He's stopping them from escaping. Um, And, like, obviously he's, you know, in charge of the camp, right? But is he, like, a villain? Is he is he actively evil? No. I mean, he, he treats them very, you know... He's very appropriate. You never see, like... I think there's only one time we see someone that escaped that has been killed. And that was in the previous camp. Yes, where, where he was not involved. Where he wasn't involved. But, I mean, when we first meet him... You know, he greets them and, you know, invites them to dinner. And it's just, you know, he's maintained this professionalism where it's like, okay, you are technically under our surrender, but I'm going to treat you like a human being. It's never the thing where we see people being tortured or abused. It, it's very weird. Even the one time we see, like, the, wor- the worst thing that happens in the movie other than, you know, the prisoners being shot for escaping... But, like, the actual, like, punishment inside mm-hmm. is when they put um, Marcel in uh, solitary. Solitary, yeah. And he's in there and it's he not... He breaks. He does. He has, like, a, a full-on breakdown. And he's like, I just want to talk to somebody. I want to sp- talk to somebody in French. I want to hear my language. I want to just be around people. I don't want to he- feel. I want to feel the sun on my face. Yes. And the German officer, or the German guard, yeah. right, is like, look, buddy, I'm, I'm sorry. Like... Do you want something? Like, he tries to give him cigarettes mm-hmm. and chocolate, but they, they have a, a language barrier. They can't. Yeah. He doesn't, like, Marcel doesn't understand what the fuck the guy's trying to do. And then he, like, leaves him a harmonica and, like, the guard leaves and closes the door. And then we see the guard kind of, like, waiting outside. And then we hear the harmonica playing. And it's, like, there is a huge amount of, like, empathy and kindness within these guys and then the guard walks away, and it's not like he knows the words to the song, so he's just kind of like, you know, you know, going with the melody that Marcel is playing. And it's like, again, even though we have this language barrier, I can still connect to you on a deeper level. And, and that's like the thing about the movie is this grand delusion that, you know, the, the movie's named after. Mm-hmm. It's like, bro, the only difference between us is like the uniform at this point, mm-hmm. like, Look, if you were in charge of the prison camp, I we'd you'd treat me the same way. Mm-hmm. Like as long like we're both like decent human beings. We're on the opposite sides of the fence on this one. Yeah. And it's like that's 
that's such a interesting way to look at it because usually when you're seeing these like war movies or you're seeing these um like movies like this where it's like oh these like we are both uh of like the same mind but you're the evil side and I'm the good side yeah like oh you know we're both like aristocrats but you're an evil racist monster and I am the smart intellectual you know captain of my brigade so we're gonna rebel against you in this movie it's just everyone's fed up yeah it's like you know i am you know clocking in at work and i'm making sure that you know you guys remain in the camp but it's like i really don't want to you know have you guys here and that was the whole thing with world war one because legitimately people were like quick war six months year mm-hmm. we're gonna be out and it drags on and drags on and germany is devastated by the war yeah. i mean they make the comment in the movie when like the new german soldiers come in mm-hmm. And, like, the old ladies outside, it's like, oh, those poor boys. And you see the soldiers that they've recruited, and they're, like, 15. Yeah, they're young men. And that's, like, the the true reality was once the soldier soldiers started dying, mm-hmm. then they started getting, like, younger and younger and younger. There's a whole thing in um, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is uh, based on a book that's based on the author's, like, real-life experiences where school teachers would start telling teenage boys that you know what you should do you should drop out maybe enlist in the army go serve your country like school teachers like imagine you're a a junior or sophomore in high school yeah and your history teacher is like you know i'm teaching you about things written in books but you could be somebody written in this book if you drop out right now and go join up get in the marine corps son that was the level of the society they were living in yeah. in like World War One Germany, and it's like this movie is kind of commenting on that. Like yeah. the the patrol that is now is chasing after them when they escape. You see the kid when he's talking to Elsa, and he's what like fourteen. Oh, very you know very fresh baby face, and he goes, you know, if I could, I'd rather stay here with you, but I've got to go on patrol. Like, and it's like, like mom's calling him to get yeah. home for dinner. And it's, yeah, God, it, God, I love this movie. This is a good movie. Yeah, because you never, I mean, you feel the initial terror when you hear them marching and the, the banging on the door. And you're like, oh, my God, they're going to take them and they're going to take Elsa and the little girl because, you know, they're harboring prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you see this baby faced looking kid where he's kind of like, I'd rather stay here with you, but okay, I guess I'll go back to the march. And it's just like... And that, and that parallel between the patrol and Marcel and, and Rosenthal is... Marcel and Rosenthal, they're men. Yeah. They're like... Like, I say that, it's like, well, yeah, they're, you know... so No, they're like they're like grown-ass men. They're yeah. like in their 30s. And they're being chased down by like 14-year-old boys with guns. And yeah. it's like you are terrified that a 14-year-old boy is going to catch up with all his friends and kill you. And it's... God, this... This movie is one of those things where it is talking about a lot of things. It's also talking, you know, about that, the reality or like the sad state of World War One. But it's also kind of commenting on this pre-World War Two Europe. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, made in 1937, uh, Hitler invades Poland in 39, I believe. And so, I'm not good with dates. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going off the top of my head here. I, people think i do research a lot of this is riffing but i'm pretty sure it's 39 and 
I think the ending of the movie is making a very subtle but very clear point is, hey guys, something's gonna happen, maybe you should run off to a neutral country. And especially um, if you are of Jewish descent, because they make the point that Rosenthal is the one that, Rosenthal and Marcel, they both escaped to Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And Renoir is making comment that, oh, there's this little underlying anti-Semitism within the German military here. And there's this thing about like race and class and structure and all the, and all these things. And the movie ends with them escaping into a neutral country. I think he's saying, hey guys, things are going to get bad. You might want to, if you don't want to be involved, you might want to leave. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you think that's a real forward thought he had? Or is that, is that me just kind of looking back and saying, man, hindsight's 2020 on that one. I think it could be a hindsight's 2020 on that one. You think so? Because I I feel it's intentional because it feels like there's a lot going on around that time where you could definitely make a comment that like, guys, I don't think things are looking too hot right now. Yeah, but I mean, this movie was also what, 37? Yeah, 37. So it's like, you know, we really haven't, you know, gotten into some of the the heavy things of history that we were about to discover. So it could have been a thing where, you know, things are bad right now. But I'm sure, just like with this movie, I'm sure this will end in like six months. Oh, And it's this thing where, you know, he probably thought, okay, this is the worst it's going to get. We just need to push over that hill and it's going to, you know, resolve itself. And two years later, it ain't resolving itself at all. No, it's only gotten worse. And I mean, you know, yeah, this is very relevant to, you know, this movie because they actually couldn't film the movie in Germany. Because, you know, that was occupied Nazi Germany at the time. And this movie, when it premiered, uh, Goebbels, the administrator of propaganda, Mm -hmm. he called this um, the cinematic enemy number one. Ah. Like him, Hitler, all those guys were like, we need to destroy this movie. What is it? Benito Mussolini. Because this was uh, shown at the Venice Film Festival. And it was like the the front runner runner to win and they were like this is gonna win it's gonna be this huge international success and he personally benito mussolini personally said it will not win the grand prize and they're like why do you have that feeling because i fucking said so it won't win the grand prize so they gave it a special award they made up an award Mm. to give it yeah it was basically like yeah best ensemble cast but but like really guys, you guys fucking won. This but Benito f- will kill us all if we give it to you. This was the first foreign film movie to be nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah, well and deserved. Very well deserved. And I think, you know, this is a commentary on these dictators that try to, you know, enforce and scare people. You know, they're scared, you know, pieces of crap. You know, they're trying to destroy this movie because this movie's actually showing the human spirit, the human condition. Where there's an inherent humanity within us all that if we just look past certain differences, we can get along. Yeah, and that's, you know, very present in this movie where it's like, you know, we don't have to agree agree on each other's politics, but we can treat each other, you know, like human beings. We can be polite to each other. We could be cordial with each other. And that's why they wanted it destroyed, because they want to keep people in the dark, keep people scared, keep people, you know, you need to support me. I will be your mouthpiece don't even question anything I have to say. And it's like, no, you are a person. You have your own voice, your own brain. 
you can think for yourself. And the whole thing is the movie's talking, you know, this this illusion, this grand illusion. And the whole thing where it's like countries and borders and this and mm-hmm. that, it's all shit we made up. Mm-hmm. It's all shit people above us are making up so we fight about it. Because it's like um, Rothstein and um, Baldia, like they're like, you know, aristocracy, high ranking, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. But they're not fucking generals. They no. didn't start the war. They're soldiers serving in it. And it's like. Like, these guys are, like, rich, whatever, but, like, there's people above them that we never see or hear about that no. are just, like, the war's still going, guys. And it's, like, well, why the fuck's the war still going? And that- even both sides when they have, you know, like, the like the, the propaganda to say, you know, what's going on and, oh, we've overtaken uh, this fort or we've done this. Both sides say, it's full of crap. Anytime they print up these things to kind of, like, hype up the teams, it's, like, they're full of shit. They're just, you know, amplifying what really happened. To make us feel like something is actually happening. And the other thing is, you know, it's World War One, which I think is ubiquitously called, like, the most pointless war of mm-hmm. the 20th century. And it's like, yeah, I could 100% see Renoir, the writers, the actors being like, what's the, what's the movie about? Of how fucking pointless all mm-hmm. of this, all this bullshit is. How it's taking us away from our lives. A lo- all our lives and humanity. And it's... Yeah, this movie is um it is a miracle it survived post yeah. uh World War II because during it like when I said like this was Nazi Germany's like cinematic enemy number one, mm-hmm. I, I fucking meant it. They they gathered up as many copies as they could, they burned it, the original negatives the, were bombed. The books. Oh yeah, the books it was based on. It mm-hmm. was were all burned. Um yeah, the the movie only survives, I believe, because there was one or two like first or second generation duplicates that were found at some university in stockholm Mm -hmm. i i believe i might be getting details wrong but it's it's like that like there was like two negatives that survived and they were released in like 58 because before that a bunch of it got cut to pieces like this movie is 114 minutes Mm -hmm. and the one that was okay to show in occupied country, occupied countries was like 82 minutes or 90 minutes, like mm-hmm. really short. They took out all like the meat of the movie. Yeah. But I'm so glad it survived. It's such a good fucking movie. Same. Um, It's, it's one of those things where this movie, it's the movie is just wonderful, honestly. Um, but I'd like to read the book. I mean, I know it's, I know it's like, quote unquote based on a book but a lot of what's going on in the movie is tied into Renoir's experiences and the experiences of people he talked to because mm-hmm. a lot of the a lot of the people he talked to were like World War One vets and who were officers in POW camps. And he also served in the First World War. Yeah so it's a thing where a lot of the stuff that's in the movie um, is a lot of antidotal stories of real things that happened to people. Mm-hmm. So I'd be very, in- actually I'd be interested to see how different the book is from the movie because yeah. apparently the script is also like wildly different than what's on screen. Hmm. Because in the script you know, Rothenstein's supposed to be out of the movie in the first 20 minutes. Yeah. But that's neither here nor there. But we did talk about the this movie was, you know, uh, nominated for the first Bex picture, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know what else it was uh, uh, brought up for in the lofty esteems of, you know, cinema history? It was in Orson Welles' arc films. Hmm. I know it sounds epic. Now, um, 
it comes from this thing where everyone's like, this movie is so good. It's the only movie Orson Welles would have picked to go on to like his arc. You know, if you can only save one movie, yeah. what movie would it be? And Orson Welles was put on the spot and said, well, do the Grand Illusion, obviously. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's the movie about everything. And um, it's it's just one of those things where it it's a movie that has always been in high esteem since it got re-released in like the 50s because mm-hmm. it's number five on the brussels like list of the best movies at its world expo in 58 in 1995 it's inducted into the vatican film archives wow. as like hey this is one of 45 films we think is quintessential for art mm-hmm. and it it's a movie that is continually brought up as no this is a masterpiece Everyone who's seen it basically agrees, but it's weird that it's not really talked about anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm curious, do you wa- you wonder why that is? I think because we have so many war films that it's just kind of like you know we're moving with the times. You know, oh, uh, Saving Private Ryan, um, Dunkirk, Dunkirk, Band of Brothers. You know, it's like we're we're sticking to these new masterpieces, and it's like we gotta go back to some of the originals, the ones that started this trend. And there's also the other thing where this is a World War One mm-hmm. war film. And let, let's be honest, World War Two made a lot of cinematic yeah. masterpieces. Oh, yeah. All right. Like, I'm not saying World War Two was good or nothing, but I mean, like, hey, hey, there's some good ass movies came out of World War Two. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, because... There was so much coverage of World War Two that it was kind of like we could turn this into a film. There is, yeah, there's another thing. There's a lot of documentary footage mm-hmm. of World War Two, and there's a lot of things that there was just more people around for creative stuff post World War Two than post World War One. Yeah, and it it is one of those things though where I'm like. Why why is it that we don't talk about this more often? Why is rules of the game higher on, you know, why is rules of the game on the sight and sound top 100 and this is not? Really? Hmm. It's one of the surprising things, right? This was on the list uh, at one point, but it was like really low, but rules of the game is everyone's like, no, that's Renoir's true masterpiece. Let's get Grand Illusion off of here. It's taking the spotlight. I mean, I feel biased because I really loved rules of the game. We mm-hmm. got to see that on the big screen for the first time, and I was like, okay, you know, this is hilarious while dealing with, you know, some... Pretty glaring social, like, double standards and this and this whole, like, romance thing, and it, Renoir brings up a lot of the things in uh, in the same movies, right? Yeah, so, you know, I could see where maybe more people were kind of like, there's some darker tones and rules of the game, but I could kind of vibe with that, mm-hmm. because, you know these people are free to go about their business versus these men that are stuck in this camp trying to escape. You know, every day it's like, all right, we're going to be able to get out of here in like two weeks. Okay, another two weeks. And it's just, you know, this this kind of tension and suspension of, you know, will they be able to get out? It, it's one of those things where I, I, I get what you're coming from because Rules of the Game is a movie that gets very dark at the end of it yeah whereas grand illusion is very like heavy and heady for a lot of it we mm-hmm. don't get a light-hearted um like we have some light-hearted stuff in it's in, sprinkled in there sprinkled in there but it's very much like 
we're in a prison camp, boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're treating us nice, but we're not getting out of here. No. It I can I can kind of see that. Like Rules of the Game is an easy vibe. This one, I mean, I even admit it took me like three tries to really like get the movie. But man, it was worth it was worth those three tries. This is a good movie. I'm surprised that I got it like right off the bat. You you had a lot more, you know, podcasting experience at the time, you know. I suppose, but I mean, you're also like that with uh TV shows. You're like, "Oh, it won't get better till like the third episode." And there's some where it's like, "No, I really enjoyed the pilot." Well, well, the thing is is like, "Won't get better till the third episode." I do that because um I was I was a Lost fan. Mm-hmm. So, I was on that train where I'm like, "Guys, it was great from episode 1. Man, this is just getting better and better." Wait. What what mm-hmm. what's going why, why are we doing... They were dead the whole time? Yeah, yeah so no. I'm just... I have a lot of reservations about TV shows now. Yeah, and that's the unfortunate thing with TV shows. Sometimes they're able to pull it off, and there's some where you could see when it starts to go off the rails, and it's just like, why? Why are we doing this? What? Which writers, like, fucked off? Which ones started Coke? What's going on? That, that's this, which, um... What studio... When Was this when the studio decided, no, we're going to take the reins, and we want to do this, and it's just like... Did this, was this where the writers found out he can't answer the question he posed in the first season, mm-hmm. so he's just gonna fucking wing it for the rest of the yeah. series? That man, that is that is the fate of too many TV shows that I fall in love with. There's um, there was one from that's on right now. Oh yeah, the, I remember you recommended that to me. Yeah, the first season is like really solid, and then the second season it has the lost problem where I'm like. You don't you don't know the answer to the questions you're asking, mm. do you? You're gonna string me along for another three seasons and then bullshit bullshit answer your way out of this. Oh fuck you movie or fuck you show. <laughs> but um But with this movie, we don't have that problem. Honestly, I prefer this to be a TV show. Honestly, I would really Okay, that that's Hogan's Heroes, but whatever. But I would really like to see if this movie ever got like remade, right? Which it shouldn't. I I know it shouldn't, but like maybe not like remade, but like heavily inspired um production i would like this to be a like 10 episode miniseries because i feel there's so much to be explored here that or we just need more um more stuff about the first world war i mean the first world war is a very interesting cinematic object i mean the only apart from this movie gods and monsters they talk a little bit about the First World War because James Whale was an officer. Well, I mean, recently we have like 1917. That's a World mm-hmm. War One movie. All Quiet on the Western Front's a World War One movie. Um, there's the World War One is becoming more of a. Um, I think Hollywood's figured out that it's like, hey guys, I think we should stop um, doing World War Two movies while we have to actually deal with Nazis right now. Let's do some World War One movies. Let's make it easy. Well, that and you know you also have movies that were made during the second world war about the war yeah and it's like you know why am i gonna watch something that was made this year or you know the following years when i have something that could be happening during that same time frame i mean there's there's a lot of great movies about war that are anti-war and there's a lot of there's there's just so many great movies out there that are kind of like pulling off of this but that's neither here nor there We've been in here for a minute. What what are your final thoughts on the Grand Illusion? I mean, I really enjoyed it. Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to walk into when you know I had to watch this movie, but yeah, I really liked it. Uh, there was one more thing that I had wanted to make a, a factoid on, 
or not a factoid. I got a factoid. Th- this is this is why I ask you. You have any more things to talk about? Yeah. So I've got my factoid. I'll save that for last. But um, one of the scenes that I I saw and it reminded me of a modern day movie that could have been inspired from this movie is when um, Marcel and Boldio when they yeah. when they first come to the prison camp and they meet up with the other Frenchmen and they're like, "Oh, good, you're just in time for dinner." And they're sitting around the table. Reminded me of Goodfellas. When they're in the in the jail and they're like, yeah, you know, he would cut it up and we'd yeah, be he's cutting in. he's cutting up the garlic and they're having this full-blown dinner. And you hear, you know, I forget which one of the men. It's like, oh, yeah, he gets the best care packages. It's it's Rosenthal. Is it Rosenthal? Because Rosenthal, it's like a thing where he's like very kind and he's like mm-hmm. sharing all of his stuff. And it's and it's another thing where it's like you know when he gets the um, when uh, Marcel calls him like oh you stinking you know Jew yeah. and he's like and and I'm in my head I'm like dude Rosenthal is like like the the true homie of yeah. the movie like he's like I get chocolates I get wine I get bread and it's it is for the boys it ain't for you it ain't it's for like, Rosenthal it's I for fed the boys you. you know it's like you could have been eating cabbage like the rest of the the prisoners. And it's like, no, you had fish, you had wine, you had chocolate. The the capacity for great kindness and and cold heartedness mm-hmm. of humanity is fascinating. Yeah. But yeah, that scene reminded me of Goodfellas. I was like, wow, I wonder if this is what inspired that scene. I I would imagine well, okay, I I read the book Goodfellas is based on, and it it's a thing where it's like, oh no, in real life the mob was just able to do that shit. But I think cinematically I feel like Scorsese, I, I know Scorsese's seen this movie, but I feel like there's definitely him cribbing a couple of things mm-hmm. like, okay, how are we going to portray this? What is the vibe we're going for? And I feel it's a very parallel vibe and tone from that scene to this scene that he's going for. Yeah, because, you know, you in Goodfellas, you have um, the wife that's, you know, oh my God, you know, he's in, in prison and they're sitting down to like Sunday dinner. And that's the vibe that you get in this movie because I think you made the perfect um, comparison that it for them it doesn't feel like a prison it feels like a dorm yeah and that's what you kind of feel like you know they're getting in and you're just in time for dinner you know come sit down and everyone's kind of you know they're not happy because of where they are but they're happy to be together the, it's it's the thing where it's like you know um, I hate the place I'm in but I I like the people I'm in here with. I enjoy the company that I have. Yeah, it's it's such a it's it's a very profoundly good movie with us so much going on. But you, what's your factoid? What's my, your factoid? My factoid, my boo fact of this episode is that the uniform that Marcel is wearing, beautiful, you know, the the black coat and everything, mm-hmm. that's actually uh, Renoir's uniform from when he served in the the Air Force. Oh, really? So that is a actual, you know. Well, I mean, I'm sure all. The costuming might be either authentic or some are replicas, but no, that is actually Renoir's uniform from war. That is that is super cool. Also, Renoir was a much thinner man back then. Uh, <laughs> if anyone sees a picture of Jean Renoir, he's a very portly gentleman. Him and Orson Welles could could have been late stage buddies. Yeah, I've never seen uh, a picture of Renoir, so I he's, don't know what he looks like. Oh, he, um, in uh, Rules of the Game, he's like you know the the portly fellow that yeah. comes in. That's Jean Renoir. Is it? That's Jean Renoir. Oh, yeah. I had no the, idea. Uh, Octave. That was yeah, he's um Octave in Rules of the Game. Oh, okay. Yeah, where he's like, oh, you know, we're here for the wine and the and the cheese. Yeah, that's yeah. Jean Renoir. Oh, okay. That 
Now, now you're looking and you're like, how the fuck he fit in that suit? No, I'm, I'm not thinking that, but I'm just thinking like, oh, okay, that's a complete trip because he's in the entire movie. Oh, and, yeah. And that's why I was just like, okay, you know, an actor. And I was like, oh, no, that's Renoir. Okay. Yeah. A fun fact about rules of the game. He got, um, he basically fell into doing that because I, I can't remember if it was like he couldn't find anybody for the role or the person for the role bailed. And he was like fuck it i'll do it myself yeah and he just you know did the fucking movie as you do as you do and it's but yeah like that is a really cool fact i didn't know that was that that was his uniform yeah i, I just you know it's very striking i mean i love costumes and in old movies you know costuming is kino yes so that's why when i saw that fact i was like wow i mean obviously a, a lot of those uniforms are probably authentic mm-hmm. it's like the thing in all quiet on the western front where a lot of the extras in that movie were like real world war one vets yeah i'm, I'm talking about the 1930s one not the like the original. 2021 yeah the original <laughs> where like, those guys were still fucking but, alive like, like you need to clarify that because people are like really they're still around i actually i think i i think there might be one or two world war one vets hanging okay probably not actually i, I, I've, I met one world war one vet in my entire life yeah, I, I think we're kind of flipping to the Second World War. Where it's like it, the oldest war people are still kicking around yeah, at. Yeah, they're starting to you kind of dwindle. But uh, yeah, and also earlier you had said you didn't know what Bastille Day was. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, um, it's a French National Day. It's the storming of the Bastille in 1789. So it's one of the, like the major events during the French Revolution that they celebrate. So the more you know. Happy Bastille Day, everyone. Happy Bastille Day. My great-grandmother was actually born on Bastille Day. Oh, was she born in, in Paris? I don't think she was born in Paris, but that is my French grandmother. Mm. Well, um, I guess I'm a huge fan of Grand Illusion. It's a five out of five for me. I think it is, it, it's a movie that talks about everything in a very like intelligent, even-handed way. It's a movie that is infinitely watchable like Mm -hmm. you can really pull a lot of different things out of it it's a movie that has like a very active camera you really feel like you're in the spaces with everyone and yeah i would 100 percent recommend anybody who has even the mildest interest in war films in uh films about society films like french films old films any films if you have black and white films black and white films any interest in this give it a watch I swear it's good. Ditto. Because I need to give this a few more watches. I will watch this more because I really did enjoy it. I was really captivated by the story, captivated by um, Bolio and Rostin. Rosenthal. No, not not Rosenthal. The other. No, no. The Uh, other. Rothstein. Rothstein. Yes. I was really captivated by their. Rothenstein. Rothenstein. Frankenstein. 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 But I was really captivated by their relationship with each other. And it's just the whole story. It's just all these men, you know, surviving together and, you know, not being malice. There's no malice or being harsh to each other. It's just eventually we're going to get out of this. It is the the grand illusion. Yes, the grand illusion that someday things will get better. Oh, that's so sad. (laughs) But things got will get better eventually. I mean, it got better. It got better. Uh, but what are we watching next week? Well, 
again, this is your month. I know, so, but I like asking the question. I know you like asking the question. It's another movie that I haven't seen. Shocker. This month is movies I've never seen before. And so far, we're doing pretty good. Really enjoyed Caligari. I enjoyed Grand Illusion. Caligari, we apologize for it being a short episode. It's but... a short episode, but I mean, I think we really were stuck on seeing how it inspired so many other people, filmmakers, pop culture. Mm. And in this movie, it was the same thing. We see how it inspired future filmmakers, movies. And, and also, fucking Ron Wall's a master here, let's be honest, boys. But we're talking about another master. Yes. Who are we talking about next week? Next week, we're talking about a film by Akira Kurosawa. Possibly his greatest masterpiece. Because poss- he has like five of them. Mm-hmm. And also, it it's a movie that I think is um, considered the greatest foreign film ever made. And if you're wondering what that is, it's Seven Samurai. The three and a half or four hour long samurai epic that has inspired... All of action cinema since its release, it is. It stars um, Toshiro Mifune, who is like honestly like one of the first great action stars of Japanese cinema. How old is this movie? Nineteen fifty-four, fifty-five. It's from the it's from the fifties somewhere. I'd have to look at the exact date, but it's from the fifties. And look, I know it's a long movie, but it's good. It's so worth it. Oh, it is so fucking good. But we'll see next week. But if they wanted to check in on us, where can they go? If you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Yes, you can. You can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube. Eventually, Dean will remember to upload slideshow versions of this podcast so you can listen to it on YouTube. But if you want to follow us on social media, where can you go? You can go to the Film Club Podcast on Instagram, where we post daily stories, upcoming episodes, and random adventures we go on. And with that... We'll see you next week at the Film Club. Bon voyage, everybody.